This morning, uh, I want to do something rather simple. Most of you will know the scriptures we're going to use already and so forth. But I do want to talk with you about Satan, the devil, and demons. As I've told you before, many years ago, I was preaching at Carroll City in a church down there over the week, over a week. And I preached a sermon about Satan's devices. I think I called it. I'll do that here sometime. It's just an outstanding, brilliant, provocative, profound lesson. Something like that anyway. And anyway, after I came back the next night to speak and this man comes up to me, he says, oh, he's my, my eight-year-old son, he just loved your sermon. He said, he, he just had one question. I said, what's that? He said, who's Satan? So I think I didn't quite make the point as clear as I'd like, but he loved the sermon. Well, the Satan is, the Satan is a name. It means adversary. And that's essentially the name that God gives his adversary. And our adversary is Satan. He's also called the devil in the scriptures. That's a more of a statement about his, his deceitful character. The word devil there means scheming and deceitful. And that's a statement about his character. It isn't so much of a name, although we call him the devil. And he has other names, uh, Polyon's other names in the Bible. But Lucifer, by the way, is not one. In my opinion, although people sometimes say that, but Satan means adversary. He is against both God and man. And we've talked about this at length in other sermons. You can look them up on the website. I don't want to go into too great a detail here about this, but I believe that Satan and what we call in the New Testament demons are the angels that rebelled against God at some time in the past after their creation. They're all created beings. They're higher creatures than man. They're of a different order than we are. Although they are not something totally different than us in many respects, they're spiritual creatures with a moral nature like us. But they don't have a physical body. They're spirits. And these angels, as it were, led by Satan, rebelled against God at some time in the past, became his adversary. I believe the Bible says in Jude 6, that the angels were given orders and dominions and principalities. In other words, uh, they all had ranks. They're different ranks of angels. We see in the book of Revelation, he calls forth a strong angel. And then we have the archangel, Michael, and so forth. Gabriel apparently is a special angel that makes announcements and announces important things. So we see they have different roles, just like we do, different hierarchies, different structure and authority, and different dominions, he says. So they were given each different responsibilities of the universe and wherever heaven or earth that they were responsible for. Satan is called the prince or lord of this world more than once. And I believe that that means, and once again, this is my belief, I can't prove this 100%, but I believe that means he was put in charge of the earth. When God made the universe and made the earth, one of the most important positions in that system of things was to be in charge of the earth because that's where God's interest was. Everything revolves around the earth, not physically, but as far as God's scheme, and and the men on the earth. Human beings are the center point of the Bible and God's interest in things. That's what he made the whole universe for, for humans to live in. So when he made Satan the prince of this world, he gave him authority over the earth. Now that was to be used in conjunction with God's will and in obedience to God as a caretaker for man and human beings. Satan was not happy with that. 
And so he rebelled against God and tried to take this earth for his own. And I believe that rebellion either started or a symptom of this was his interaction with Eve and Adam in the garden and tempting them to follow him and not God. That's what he did. He drew them away. That's his rebellion. He drew us away from serving God to serve him. Because he wanted the glory. And like some, like they say, some people have the idea it's better to reign in hell than, than to be a servant in heaven, you see. Now, that's not the exact saying, but something like that. They would just rather be in charge of, in hell than they would be the servant of God. And Satan is one of those kind of creatures. Now, many of the other angels didn't rebel. There are the elect angels, the New Testament says. Then there are the damned angels, the ones who are damned to destruction. That's the ones who rebelled. From that point on, God cast them down in authority, and they've been reserved and limited in their influence on the world. But Satan has not been completely limited, nor have, nor have his minions, as it were, the demons we call them. Is this not working? Hmm. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Thank you for just a moment here. Hang on, folks. I need to uh, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. I'm going to unplug that. That kills all the feed to the other rooms, but I don't know why it's doing what it's doing. What's that? So if I start it over, it should work this time? No, you just got to hit the button to get out of your menu screen on the TV. Hang on. Yeah, because you're up, you're good. It's good now? Okay. Thank you for letting me know about that. I would have no idea that it was doing that. So in any event, um, God, Satan has been limited in his authority. On the earth. He has power and influence, but he's been limited in what he can do to human beings and to the earth itself. Now, why did God leave him in this position of having authority, but not, and not destroy him? I don't know the answer. That's the big, that's the really the big question of creation in the universe to me. Why does Satan even exist? Why did God allow him to continue to exist? Why didn't he destroy him when he rebelled? He didn't. He has his reasons. And, and so there have been a lot of misconceptions. Now, I believe what's happened, well, briefly, I think we talked about this on the radio recently. I think someone asked about demon possession. We don't see anything about demon possession in the Old Testament, hardly at all. You see some prophecies about the unclean spirits that would come and then pass out of the land. But during the time of Christ, just before him, until the time of the apostles, we see demons popping up on the earth, interacting with men, taking men against their will. Satan would love to take you against your will and make you his servant, make you evil, make you rebel against God, against your will. God does not permit him to do that, at least most of the time. He didn't, he did permit it for a certain period of history. Why was that? Well, God plays fair, as it were. In the Old Testament, God limited his power and he limited Satan's power. But he was going to unleash his power more openly in the New Testament time, during Christ's lifetime. He was going to unleash his power. He was going to give his apostles and great power to do miracles, gave his son great power to do miracles and wonders. And so he allowed Satan to have more influence. In fact, what do the demons say? Uh, well, they ask him, for example, why was this man born blind? Well, Jesus said, well, it was to show my power. That's why he was born blind. Why did the demons come? He said, well, so show that I can cast you out. 
So the demons were allowed to come and possess people in New Testament times so that the apostles and Jesus himself could cast them out to show their power over Satan. And then after New Testament times, we see demons fade away. I know the Catholic Church still has exorcists and so forth, but I don't believe those are really the same thing. Now, the other thing to remember about Satan is this. He is limited in his power. He cannot come against your will and take you captive. Okay, so you got a, you got a vicious dog on a leash. He's in the yard on a leash. Signs up everywhere. Can he get to you? No, he's on a leash. How can he get to you? Only if you step into his territory. You get too close. You're in his territory. He can get you there. And so some, that's the, that's why there's warnings in the Bible about dabbling in the occult and all kind of other stuff. It's because it, that's an area where Satan can influence you and have power over you. And so there are people today, they're not taken against their will. They willingly walk right into the devil's pathway and he is seemingly seems to take them over and they become evil in that regard. Now that's a, that may be controversial. We can talk about this some other time. But, but there's some things you need to know about the devil from the Bible. Brief, these are a few brief things you can know about him that I think are interesting because they have something to do with us. And here are some good things about the devil that I want you to compare yourself to today, strangely enough. One of them is, oh, I'm not even showing you anything, am I? Y'all help me a little, but then... First one is, did you know that the devil believes in God? People like to think, oh, a person who's an atheist really hates God, but all the rest, oh, I believe in God, so I'm okay. Well, you know, the devil believes in God. Uh, it's just shown in the book of Job. Maybe one of the oldest books in the Bible as far as when it happened. There was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. Some people say that's a reference to angels. That's fresh and sons of God in this case. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth. There he is on the earth again, see? That's his domain. And from walking back and forth on it. And he goes and talks about it. So God said, well, you've been on the earth looking. Have you seen my servant Job? You know, Job is a good man. And I said, oh, yeah, really? Let me. I don't know this Job guy. Oh, no. Satan knew Job. He doesn't just know wicked people. He knows good people real well. He knows where you are and what you're all about. And his interest is in subverting you and destroying you. He doesn't have to worry about the people this morning who hate him who hate God, I mean, could care less about him. He'd not have to worry about those people. But he is certainly after those who serve the Lord. And he did it in the case of Job. God allowed him to do it in the way he wanted to by bringing calamity and illness and physical distress upon him and every of every kind, loss of your love. He brought grief upon him. He brought pain upon him. All kind of other things he brought upon Job in an effort to destroy his faith. So when you are facing, as a side note, when you are facing a battle with physical illness, that perhaps is permanent and perhaps may kill you, but you are facing the distress over the loss of a loved one or some station in life that hurts you badly. You are seeing the power, you are seeing Satan exercise power in your life. I don't know if he caused it or not. That's not for me to decide, but I know this. He will certainly use it to destroy your faith. How do I know that? Well, I've read the book of Job. That's how I know that. And that's why all these things about faith is not just about some religious issue per se. It's about how you handle life. And he's trying to turn you against God by this suffering that you endure. 
And so what, what we know from this verse up here, Job 1.6, is that he believes in God. He's actually, I bet he believes in him more than you do, strangely enough. I'm sure he believes in him more than I do because he's seen him. There's coming a day, a judgment day coming, when there will be no more doubters because every knee will bow at the name of Jesus Christ. They're going to see God in the judgment day and they're going to mean no more doubts, whatever it may be, because they will have seen him. Now, the other point is that, is that the demons, and I think, and by extension, the devil, the demons are simply angels like Satan, only not as powerful as he is. They fear God. Here's the passage you might have thought I should use first in James 2. James is talking about faith and works and how we're saved and so forth. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have, have works. He says, show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. James says, okay, so you say you have faith, so, but you don't believe in works. Show me your faith. Show it to me. What can you do? Can't show anything. It's just an idea. It's a thought. But he says, I can show you my faith because I have works. I have done something to serve God. It's what I do. And says, you believe that there is one God. So there's a belief. You believe there's one God. Or you believe, some versions say, you believe that there God is. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. I think he adds the and tremble because he knows that most humans say they believe God, but they don't tremble at God. They don't fear God. They talk about him and they use his name in vain all the time for every little thing that happens. But they don't really fear God and hold him at all. I'll tell you something. He says, uh, do you not know, want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? The demons have faith in God. They believe he is. They believe he's powerful. They fear him, but they don't do anything about that. They're not, they don't intend to alter their existence at all. They shut it out. And so many people that claim to be religious, they say they fear God. They have faith in God, I mean, but they won't ever alter what they do or say at any time. The fact, because, because God is there. He says even the demons do better than that because they tremble at the name of God. We use his name in vain every day. Many people do. It's very discouraging. And this is, this is the trouble with us if, of not having the profound respect we ought to have for God's name and for God himself and for God's power in the world. We do not do that. We're no better than the devil in this case then. Because the demons at least fear him. And also, interestingly enough, the devil's a hypocrite. I don't know what word to put here. I used hypocrite. Maybe that's the wrong word. He's a phony. Something we could learn about. He, he's pretending to be something that he's not. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts, they saw this man Barnabas doing good, selling land, giving it to the poor, and they wanted to be like Barnabas. And so in chapter 5, they sell some land, act like they're giving the whole price of the land to the apostles, but they keep back part of it. And God condemned them and struck them dead. Ananias and Sapphira wanted to look good without being good. Now, there was no requirement to give all, but they wanted to pretend to give all so they could look good. How much human behavior is about looking good without being good? Oh, lots of it. I can tell you there's one word I think of when I see that looking good without being good, and it's an odd word. It's called Facebook. Instagram, there's another one. Instagram is about looking good 
without being good. Am, am I wrong about that? That's, that's what it is. I, I know people, I literally know people that are depressed because, and what, they don't know, they don't say this outright, but what they, the evidence they give is they see all these people on Facebook with their vacations, nice houses, they don't have that, and it's very upsetting to them. Their life, other people's lives are going so well. Those, theirs is going so terribly. What's wrong with me? Does God hate me? I wish I could live a different life. I hate to clue you in. There's other people who aren't going to show you what they want you to see. That's what they're going to show. Lots of people like that. Now, some people will show you the bad and the good, but people aren't going to show you the bad, and and because they want to look good. And they build a whole lifetime around. They build a whole persona. That's what it means to be an Instagram model, building a persona about looking good. I know very little about that, but I know enough to know that. It's about that. And, and the devil is like, he said, look, some, Paul says, some for such are false apostles. I'm breaking into the middle of a context. So forgive me for that. We haven't got time to look at all the context here, but for such are, are false apostles. Now the word false here, false teacher, false apostle, can have two meanings. Because the word false can have two meanings. It means true or false. It means that what these apostles are saying is false. They're saying false things that aren't true. And believe it or not, people, there is such a thing as truth. Truth is not your own opinion. You don't get your truth, but there is such a thing as truth. And it's possible for a false apostle to be called such, or a false teacher, because he's teaching something that is wrong or false. But it often means, along with that, though, they are false in character. They are pretending to be something that they're really not and much more righteous and so forth than they really are. This is what we're seeing in the last few years among so many church, quote-unquote, church leaders, not only in the Catholic Church but in Protestant denominations, who are filthy sexual abusers and adulterers. Not only that, but they protect those who are. And we're seeing all this exposed Oh, that's the devil's work. Well, now, God may be letting the devil do it, but God has a reason for exposing all that stuff too. But they're pretending. How many of them are big shots in big churches with big followings? That's who it seems to be the worst among. Much less your little deacon in some Baptist church in Tennessee. Yeah, you get those, but they don't make headlines, you know. But the big ones. It's, it's disgusting. It's shameful. It's heartbreaking because it, it brings shame upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to have no part in that. Now, on the other hand, what it allows Satan to do is he really twists the knife on everybody. He likes to get everybody involved in stuff. I wish I could find the notes on some brilliant sermon I wrote years ago about this. Can't find them. Judy was reminding me of this the other day. I can't find my notes on that. So I have to, she, could, she remembers what I say, though, so she'll remember this. About the way Satan works. What he does now is he gets you to say, believe all women. The result of all these men doing these wicked things is we have to believe all women. That's as much of a lie as the other. See, he wants everybody caught up in this. That was, that was a big reporter, NBC, MSNBC. That was her reaction to Johnny Depp and Amber Heard's trial where the jury found that Amber Heard woman guilty of all this stuff and they gave her him a bunch of money as if he needs it. I don't care about that. I don't care about either one of those people as far as following them or anything like that, but I read about this trial. Her conclusion was, well, where, where's this believe all women stuff? We, we know that all men are guilty and women should be believed in spite of the fact 
that the testimony of all the witnesses in the trial said just the opposite of that. Here's a woman that shouldn't be believed and trusted. Is that, is that heresy? I'm going to get thrown off of YouTube for saying that. There are women that lie and shouldn't be trusted. How can you say that? Well, I can say that because it's true. Does the fact that there's a woman that can't be trusted mean that all women can't be trusted? See, these Marxists like the ones in MSNBC lump everything into groups. So if one person in the group is this way, the whole group must be that way or whatever it may be. They don't care that women as a group don't act the same way all the time. We should judge each person individually by what they do. That's the truth. But they throw everybody into a group. If you're white, you got to vote this way. If you're black, you got to vote that way. You can't do anything else. Who says that? Well, people that don't know the truth say that. Don't care about the truth say that. But Satan wants you to think like that. And his apostles are deceitful. Not only are they false teachers oftentimes, but they're deceitful in their personality. They are not what they pretend to be. They're deceitful workers. They transform themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder. For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Satan always appears as an angel of light. When you, If you look at what the important elite people and the media say about wicked people and wicked things, you will see that what Satan would teach, they say, is enlightened. They use the word enlightened. Yeah, he's enlightened, all right. What did he tell Eve? What did he say to Eve in the garden? If you eat this fruit, God's lying. He's not telling the truth about this fruit. He says you'll die. I say you'll become enlightened and you'll be like a God knowing good and evil. So he became an apostle of light. He's the one that's going to enlighten Eve along the way. Oh, she got enlightened all right. She got introduced to things she never dreamed of before that destroyed her children and her world. And so did Adam by following along. So it's no great thing, he says, if his ministers, the ministers of Satan, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness whose end will be according to their works. There's an end coming for these kinds of people. But make no mistake about it, the devil is a hypocrite, a phony. And he, he loves to trap people in this. It, see, it feel, He wants you to feel good about what you're doing, so you don't care what a church really is teaching, as long as when you go there, you feel good when you leave. And you feel like, well, I saw a light show, so it must be true, it must be light that I'm seeing, because I saw a light show. This is the kind of associations he wants you to make. Foolishness. And the preacher was handsome or he has a smooth voice or they have nice daycare for my children. So what I'm hearing at that church must be true. Hmm. I don't think it's that simple. Satan also likes to quote scripture. Did you know that? I did, I used the same verse. That's not the script. That's wrong. I didn't, I did something wrong there. Anyway. You remember Matthew chapter 4 and other occasions. In Matthew chapter 4, after Jesus uh, is baptized, he goes into the wilderness to pray. And there he was tempted by Satan. After 40 days, Satan comes to him. If you're the son of God, you've been fasting for 40 days. If you say you're the son of God and you think you are now, Turn these stones into bread. I'm telling you something. You ever been to ever been to Israel? One thing you'll see is rocks. Am I wrong about that? That's one thing you will definitely see everywhere you go is rocks of various sizes. Size this building down a little pebbles. Everywhere you go is rocks. 
And here are stones where Jesus was. He said, nice loaf of bread there, man. That's almost looks like it could be white mountain bread or something. It's right shape and everything. There's a rock. Make it bread. You're hungry. Make it bread. Satan says, no, man shall not live by bread alone. I mean, Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then Satan quotes Scripture. Doesn't the Scripture say that he will not let you stub your own toe? You can't stub your own toe. If you stub your toe, you'll, you jump off a thing. You'll be lifted up. So go ahead and jump off the pinnacle of the temple here. He quotes Scripture to him. Psalm 90, I believe it is. Jesus says, Thou shalt not tempt the... He comes back with more Scripture. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Test him. So, Satan is not averse to quoting Scripture. His apostles, his workers are going to quote Scripture. They're just going to use it incorrectly. This is a kind of a pet peeve of mine, having been a debater, is that people think that just because you can answer an argument, that you've answered the argument, you've answered something. Having an answer for something is not the same as having an answer for something. And if you've ever dealt with a, an idiot boyfriend who's trying to explain why he's got another girlfriend on the side, you probably know what I'm talking about. He has an answer for where he was or what he was doing or why there's a girl's scarf in his purse or something. He has an answer, but is it really an answer? Well, he wants you to think it is, and if you're shallow, you'll believe that. It's no answer. An answer is one is a thing that satisfies the question that's been raised by this evidence here. And so, yes, you can give scriptural answers to things, but sometimes they're not at all what they ought to be. I'm doing this off the top of my head here. Uh, something I read a little bit this morning. Al Moeller, who is the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary, had an article about baptism. Somebody asked me a question about baptism. They're worried about this. Their grandmother or somebody who's old and they're worried about her being saved because she says, well, I was baptized when I was a teenager, so I'm saved. So they want Al Moeller to discuss this. And he basically says, well, baptism doesn't save you, can't save you, takes faith. That's a disingenuous, dishonest answer. He knows better than that. He knows that the people who teach that baptism saves you don't believe it saves you. He says, well, baptism by itself can't save you. I don't know anybody that teaches that. Not even the Catholic Church teaches that baptism by itself will save you. That's a disingenuous, deceitful answer he gave. I'm sorry, he's Al Moore, I should say that. But I just couldn't believe what I was reading. Instead of engaging, instead of engaging the debate, instead of engaging the point and, and taking it seriously, he gave a superficial answer hoping that people wouldn't know. Of course, baptism includes faith and repentance. Nobody comes into this baptistry right here to be baptized unless I understand, whoever's doing the baptism understands that they have confessed by their mouth that they have faith in Jesus Christ and that they trust God and that they are repenting of their sins. That's before, that all happens before he goes into the water. So to say that we believe that salvation by water only is a lie. It isn't true. It's deceitful. And therefore, there won't be an answer. So you can quote scripture all you want to. That's not the question. I can quote more scripture than you, and you can quote, you know, who knows? Who cares? I have three scriptures over here, and I only have one. Well, that doesn't mean three doesn't beat one. The truth beats so what's the truth about the situation? What do the scriptures really say? So if you want to debate someone or argue with them or try to convince someone, 
try to understand what they would teach us years ago is to be honest about it. You need to be able to restate your opponent's position in words that he will agree with. So if I'm going to have a debate with somebody, I'm going to try to restate their belief in words that they will say, yes, that's what I believe. Now then, once I've restated, now then I can go and talk about that. So it doesn't matter how many verses that you use. It matters what the scriptures say. This verse I put up here earlier about faith and works. They will tell you you're saved. You're not saved by works. You're only saved by faith. That you are saved by faith only. Now, if they would leave off the only, I'm good with being saved by faith. That's exactly what the Bible says. But when they put the word only on there, it's like putting poison in the in the soup. It changes everything about it. You see, because the word only isn't in the Bible. In fact, the only time only is in the Bible connected to faith is James says we're not saved by faith only. We're not saved by faith only. So you need to spend some time in there. Instead of dismissing James, Martin Luther said James was an epistle of straw or a right strawy epistle, meaning it was worthless because he didn't want to explain what James said in chapter 2, that we're saved by works. What kind of work? Well, can't you have a definition of works? It doesn't mean what you think. Can we engage in an honest way about these things? Don't be like the devil about this and just quote scripture at one scripture here and then expect people to change their mind about things. Engage truthfully and honestly. And I'm talking to you about that. Engage with your friends who you disagree with. I don't care if you win an argument or not. Tell the truth. You may lose that day. Maybe they're more prepared than you are. Maybe they know more than you about it. But don't be tempted by the fact that you might look bad in an argument or a discussion to say what's not true or misrepresent what people believe. There's no, no use, no interest in misrepresenting what Mormons say or Jehovah's Witnesses. We should never do that. Don't misrepresent what they say. Now, sometimes they don't like the conclusions that we reach about what they say. But don't put words in people's mouths. And, and the, Satan likes to do that, you see. Uh, here's another thing about this. The, the demons knew who Jesus was. A lot of people, they don't know who Jesus is. That They say he's a good teacher. He's a social revolutionary. They don't know who Jesus is. But the demons knew who he was. Some people don't recognize him at all. They say he doesn't, didn't even exist. He's, he's completely irrelevant to history because he never even existed in the first place. That's a common modern argument which has no, no historical basis at all. We have plenty of historical evidence that Jesus existed outside the Bible. For example, in Mark 1, 34, there's lots of these references. Then he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. And he, did, he did not allow the demons to speak because they knew him. What's that mean? Well, I think this is a period of time in Jesus' ministry when he didn't want it to be known that he was the Son of God. He was trying to keep that under wraps for a while. He was trying to, to teach people and show his power so they would come to that conclusion later. So he wasn't proclaiming openly at this point in time that he was God's Son. But they knew who he, who he was, and he he wouldn't let them speak. He, permit, he, he stopped them from speaking because... When he cast out others later, they proclaimed him to be God's son. This even happened strange. And I, there may have been other reasons for this. Remember when Paul and Silas were traveling around and this young woman kept coming along. And she, she had demons. She kept crying out to them about God, that they're they servants of the Most High God and so forth. They're servants of Jesus. And he stopped her from doing that. Satan, like, he, Satan doesn't mind that because here's a crazy person saying that you're preaching Jesus. How's that look? Oh, I've been in church where there's crazy people. 
There's some people that don't help the cause because of how they act and what they do. And they're on your side, maybe. But Jesus didn't want this demon-possessed person proclaiming who he was early in his ministry. That would have turned everything the wrong way. But they knew who he was. Then you have this reference over in Mark 5. They came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gadarenes. I know this place. I think I know this place. I've been this, to this place or some had to be close because there's not much territory like this. We were, we we're on the Sea of Galilee a couple of years ago in a boat on the Sea of Galilee. And we come up from where we were to the north, up to the, the north shore. And we come back down along that other shore. And, and the Israeli, the Israeli, uh, captain of the boat runs out the front. He has his crew fly up the American flag and they, they played the Star Spangled Banner, you know. For us American tourists, it was quite moving, quite quite a religious experience on the Sea of Galilee. But anyway, and I keep looking for this place. I'm looking around. I'm looking for this place. He says, see, on the other side, you see all those cliffs over there? This is most likely, because it's about the only place it can be, the place where Jesus cast all these swine into the sea. They ran off that cliff over there. Quite quite interesting to be there and see what it was like. Because the coastline wasn't like that on it would be the west side of the lake. But on the east side, it just dropped off to a big, a big cliff. And that's where Jesus was. He went on the, he went on the other side. He went around from the, from his side where he was in Nazareth, went up here, went all around the other side. It's easy to walk. It would take you a day or so to walk over there. But he walked over there and was teaching. And when he'd come out of the boat, uh, in this case, he went, he went, uh, by boat, but I think other times you think he walked on that side of the sea. Immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man, with an unclean spirit. Here's a demon, unclean spirit. Who, who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and neither could anyone tame him. And always, day and night, he was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. So sad and pitiful spirit person, but he had almost superhuman type strength that this demon had given him inside of him, and he could not be retained. This is the kind of thing Satan would love to do to all of us, to shame us, to humiliate us, to make us a laughing stock, to make us not what we are at all, not human. In fact, I'm coming to this, but at the end of this story, after he's been healed, Jesus cast out the demons, is as he came and was clothed in his right mind. So now he's a whole different, he's the same person, but he's back to where he was, his right mind. We have a song, um, I can't think of the name of it, written by Frederick Maker, uh, O Lord and Father, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind. The second verse says, Clothe us in our rightful mind. I think it's referring to this, to this incident where this deep man, this man was taken from being possessed by a demon in his horrible condition, and healed. But when he saw, that's not my point today, but when he saw Jesus Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. I implore you that you do not torment me. So he knew who Jesus was. Jesus has a short conversation with him, and he said, 
How many demons? Well, there are seven demons in this. He said, my, what's your name, Jesus? And he says, my name is Legion because there's seven demons in me. And Jesus, he, he said, he cast him out. He cast the demons out. They went into a sw- herd of swine and the swine possessed by the demons ran over the cliffs into the sea. Now, this is used by unbelievers to say Jesus was a vandal and destroyer of property, a criminal, because he destroyed other people's property by casting these pigs into the sea. Well, he didn't cast the pigs into the sea. That's interesting that they would say that because they'd have to believe he actually did this if they're going to use him for crime, but they don't believe that. They just want you to have doubts about it. And he didn't make them run into the sea. They ran into the sea of their own accord. The devil did it, if you say. Well, if you believe that Jesus cast out a demon, why can't you believe the devil made him run into the sea? You see, they're all tra- they get trapped in their own devices. But he says, don't torment me because I know who you are. A lot of people today who claim to be Christians don't really know who Jesus is. They know some soft, white European, long-haired guy they see on paintings. Some soft, white guy, they know that's Jesus. They don't know the Jesus of the Bible. They think he's a social revolutionary, he's an environmentalist, whatever it may be that they want to add their name, add to the list of causes. This isn't who Jesus was. He didn't come here to establish some socialist utopia on the earth. He came here to save those individual people from their own sins. The demons also know they're doomed. We're going to wrap this up. I can't believe I preached so long. It's supposed to be a short sermon. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two demon-possessed men. This is a similar incident, if not the same. Coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce, that no one could pass that way. And they cried out suddenly, What have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? There was a time coming when they were going to be cast out or tormented and they knew this wasn't have you come before the time they knew they're doomed they knew that they're having fun now but they, it can't last and you go to matthew 25 at the judgment day picture of the judgment of matthew 25 in a way he will say to those on his left hand depart from me you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels and the thing is the demons know this the devil knows this but people that call themselves christians don't know this they refuse to believe in heaven and hell, and particularly hell. What's that song? Uh, I know there ain't no heaven, but I, and I pray there ain't no hell. Three dog knife. Or we could do imagine John Lennon. No heaven above us, only st- only sky, no hell beneath us, and so forth. Yeah, you wish it were like that. You wish that there was no heaven or hell, but there is. Even the demons know that. And then you see this passage in Revelation. The devil who deceived them. This is a picture of the end, uh, perhaps, at the end, and it's a figurative picture. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone. Where were the beast and the false prophet are? No other symbols in the book. And they will be tormented night and day forever. I don't know if that's part of what they expect or not. I think they think they're going to be judged. I'm not sure the devil expects to be tormented. I imagine he thinks, well, what are the pictures you see about hell today? What people? Oh, they picture the devil standing around. And he, he's engulfed in flames, but he's apparently enjoying it. Poking people with a pointy stick, you know, doing something else fun to them. He's enjoying himself. That may be now. I don't know. But that is not what's coming for him. It says here he's going to suffer forever for what he's done in ways that you can only imagine. Because I can guarantee you the suffering is going to be proportional to who he is. 
This creature was made by God and knows it and has seen God and dwelt in his presence. What punishment do you suppose awaits him in his rebellion? Hard to contemplate. Well, our time is gone this morning. I thank you very much for listening. And I appreciate it very much. And I apologize for going so long. I, I really didn't think it was that late, but it, it is. And I want to encourage you this morning, if you are not a Christian, to think about these things so that you will not do something, as it were, worse than the devil, not to believe in Christ, not to have faith, not to let that faith cause you to obey him, to repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins, to turn against the devil and all his deceitful devices. Perhaps you've been deceived by Satan and figured that somehow doing what you want and doing sin, sinful things, is going to be better for you, and you know it's not. So come this morning and repent. If we can baptize you into Christ, come to the front row. We can do that right now. If we can pray with you about a sin or a problem you have, come to the front right now. Let's stand and sing.